Our primary reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and, and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. The disciples did so. And everyone sat down, taking the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Rob Sturdy. I'm the Anglican chaplain at the Citadel. Really happy to be here with you all this morning. I do remember the first time I met Colin. And it was uh, to discuss a project that he didn't have room for anymore, but it was a place where you could talk about Jesus outside of the church with people who might not be so comfortable coming to church. And so it's nice to see that this is something of an extension of that, because I did meet some people on the way in who were not so comfortable coming to church, but you're comfortable here. And the first time I met Aaron, 
I was leaving my office late, which is pretty common, to get to chapel, and I think she saw how crazy I looked and my associate looked, and Aaron said, you can just meet here. (laughs) So these are great people, and it's really special for me to be here with them and with you. And if you ever get invited to preach in this church, they give you a little sheet that tells you everything you're supposed to do by the day, right up until 9.45 this morning. And I think this is true. The last thing on that sheet, it just says, pro tip, wear pants. <laughs> so, it's nice when the bar is set low enough for you to clear it, right? <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, be with us and help us. We ask this banking on your love and grace. Amen. I came across a passage in a little book that stood out to me recently by a man named Rowan Williams. He's the former Archbishop of Canterbury. He's a theologian. And he neatly summarized an attitude that I think a lot of us are aware of in the wider society. Might even share this attitude amongst ourselves. And that attitude is that there's a general sense of mistrust towards the great institutions of our society. What kind of great institutions are we talking about? There's a general sense of mistrust towards the government. There's a general sense of mistrust towards medicine. There's a mistrust towards education. And um, there's a general sense of mistrust towards the church. That's something I spoke to some of you about on the way in over coffee this morning. There's a general sense of mistrust. This is especially tragic, sometimes even towards our own neighbors that might fall on different sides of certain major issues than we would fall on. This is how Williams put it in his own words. He said, this crisis of trust isn't simply that we have become remarkably cynical in many of our attitudes, that we approach people in public life with unusual levels of suspicion. It's also more disturbingly We don't feel the great institutions of our society are working for us. He goes on to say that we simply no longer believe that their work, whatever it might be, is for our advantage. And if these institutions no longer work for us and for our advantage, it begs the question, for whom and to whose advantage are they working? The focal point of the crisis of trust in modern society is this suspicion, and sometimes it's proven true that these institutions are actually working for themselves and they're advancing their own agendas towards their own advantage. So over the past several years, we've seen numerous examples in government, in the financial sector, in medicine. Sometimes Christians say, well, thank God we have never seen the church work for her own advantage. But I wonder what church they're watching, because I see an awful lot of it. The abuse of power and privilege for selfish ends, and it often comes at the cost of those who place their trust in these institutions in the first place. So it seems to me that a person who was, or a community of persons who could be, vested with power and authority while also proving themselves trustworthy of possessing that kind of power and authority would be a great asset 
to communities that were experiencing a crisis of trust. In fact, if such a person or a community of persons were to exist, you might actually be able to call that person or that community gospel, which just means good news. Good news for a world that is impoverished of trust, and no matter how cynical they've become, when they're honest, they would admit, we need trustworthy communities. We need a trustworthy person. So Christians believe that trustworthy persons can be formed in the name of a trustworthy person, Jesus. That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. I'll be in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 20, if you want to follow along. But I'll read bits and pieces as we go. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Jesus had assembled the twelve, his closest and most committed followers, And they had already seen him do some amazing things. In this gospel, Luke's gospel, they'd seen him heal a disabled man in chapter 5. They'd seen him heal a man with a withered hand in chapter 6. They saw him heal a mortally sick slave in chapter 7. And at one point, they saw him raise a man from the dead. They knew Jesus had power. And they knew that he had authority. What they didn't know is what he planned to do with these things. And it's a surprise as we read along that one of the things Jesus planned to do with his power and his authority was to give it to other people. It's the American journalist and author, Pulitzer Prize winner, Robert Carroll. He observed, power doesn't always corrupt. Isn't that what we're used to hearing? Power corrupts, I bet you can finish it, and absolute power corrupts. Yeah, not necessarily. Power doesn't always corrupt. This is what Caro said. Power doesn't always corrupt, it reveals. When you have enough power to do what you always wanted to do, then you get to see what that person always wanted to do. If they could do it. It's revealing. Jesus' use of power, what he does is someone who has already demonstrated, by the time we get to this reading, someone who has already demonstrated he has enough power to do whatever he wants to do, is revealing. You get to see a glimpse of what Jesus really wants. So power in and of itself is not so important to Jesus. And that's why he doesn't keep it. He gives it away. There's more we could say about it. He's not just redistributing his power when he gives it to his disciples and sends them out. Even if it's noble to redistribute power. He's redistributing it with a commission, with a purpose to use it in a specific way. He's giving away his power so that there are more people to do the kind of work Jesus is most interested in doing. What is the kind of work that Jesus is most interested in doing? He's interested in freeing people from the kinds of things 
that keep them in bondage. Like evil and like illness. So he gives away his power to the twelve. They're not supposed to keep it for themselves. They're not supposed to serve their own interests. They're sent out to the sick and the sad and the guilty. They're sent out to the deceased. And Jesus said to the twelve in Mark's gospel, Go and proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And Jesus reminded them, You got this for free. So you need to give it away for free. In Jesus, as well as the twelve, there's a community of people coming together who have power and they have authority and they're not using it for themselves, but they use it for the advantage of the most vulnerable, the hurt ones. And so it's no wonder that everywhere Jesus and his disciples went, they received a remarkable and enthusiastic reception, but always from a specific kind of person. They received an enthusiastic reception from the sick and the sad and the lost, the castaways, the people who didn't have a place to go. These are the people that are excited to see Jesus come into town. I don't know if you ever heard of the French Presbyterian called Righteous Among the Nations. I don't know if you know what that means, but it's a designation given to Gentiles that rendered special assistance to the Jewish people during World War II. French Presbyterian André Trocmé, he said, what did Jesus and his disciples experience? The poor and the sick and the outcast gave him an extraordinary reception to the proclamation of the kingdom. Whether in Galilee or in Judea, crowds gathered as soon as word spread that Jesus was coming. In Jesus and the twelve, the least and the lost, recognize this is someone who's for us. He uses what he has for us. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything that had happened. This is in verse 10. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed everyone who needed it. Luke's telling us this story of the extraordinary reception. 5,000 men and their families followed Jesus into the desert, and it just says that Jesus welcomed them, all of them. He spoke to them and he healed them, and we'll see in a minute that he fed them. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send a crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside, find food, find lodging. We're in a remote place here. And Jesus has a very blunt response to this huge problem that's developing out in the wilderness. His blunt response to this huge problem is, You feed them. John's gospel gives us a better picture of the exasperation the disciples had in the face of the overwhelming need. Seems like they thought Jesus' response was ignorant or flippant. 
Philip answered him, it'd take a year and a half's wages to pay for the bread that we're going to need for everyone to eat. In Luke's telling, they have five loaves of bread and two fish. We learn from Matthew's gospel, it was probably given to them by a child. And if you know it was given to them by a child and you have children, then you know mom packed that lunch. And Jesus receives what he's given. It's very small. It's very humble. It's insufficient to the need. Jesus received what was given, and he gave thanks to his father, and then he gave this meal to his friends, and everybody ate. And after everyone had eaten, there was leftovers. One prayer that's derived from this gospel story said, Christ had compassion on the hungry, and he performed a miracle of love. A miracle of love with this small little offering. There's two versions to this story, by the way. I've heard both of them in churches. One version of this story is what you might call a theologically liberal version. Not talking about politically liberal, but I'm talking about theologically liberal from a tradition that is a little suspicious of supernatural things. And this telling of the story suggests there's no miraculous multiplication of food Jesus just helped the people realize that if they shared what they had, there'd be enough for everybody. There's something true about that. The conservative version, theologically conservative version of that story, is that it's pure miracle. It doesn't depend upon the charitable sharing of the people gathered around Jesus. Neither one of these versions actually get to the root of what I think is most important about it. It's a wonderful little book, remarkable little book called The Gospel in Salentaname. It's a record of conversations held by Nicaraguan farmers, campesinos, as they read through the Gospels in the 1970s. This book is just a record of those conversations. No editing, no priest sneaking into the meeting to muddle it up. What did people think when they came out of the farm and read the gospel. And this is a comment on this story we read this morning from a farmer named Pancho. I'm catching on to what this means here, he said. They didn't have enough, right, to feed the 5,000 people. But then he said to them, it doesn't matter, share it, and there was more than enough. He made them understand no matter how little they had, they had to share it, and they did share it, and he had power to stretch it out. And so, Pancho's insight into this text is this. It is a miracle. But it's a miracle that depends upon a sacrificial offering. Of five loaves and two fish. Whoever that belonged to, they had to offer it up in a way that they wouldn't get it back. At least not until Jesus had received it. They had to offer up what little they had. They had to lose it in the process. And they had to trust somehow God could use this little offering. This humble offering to satisfy many people. Now we have something else to say about Christian uses of power and authority. Out in the desert, Jesus is teaching his disciples how the kingdom of God is meant to function. The kingdom of God 
is not to be maintained by requiring sacrifices from others outside the community to preserve the power and the authority of the people inside the community. And especially the people at the top of that community. The kingdom of God's preserved through the sacrifices of its own people. For the sake of others, anybody that's serious about following Jesus is going to have to learn at some point how to make an offering. Just as a child did, and trust that God is going to do more with the little sacrifice than you could ask or imagine. I just dawned on me that it's a Presbyterian church and I say offering and you might be worried that the plate's coming. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about reputation. I'm talking about money. I'm talking about all kinds of things that God will bring to you. You don't have to go find them but you have to be sensitive to when it comes time for you to make an offering. Anybody who's serious about their Christian faith is going to have to learn how to make an offering, just as the child did. And learn how to trust that God can do more with this little sacrifice than you could ask or imagine. In Poncho's words, he can stretch it out. It's interesting, only after this miracle, they've seen Jesus do so much, it's only after he shows them he can stretch out a little offering that Peter calls him the Christ, the Son of God. Not long after that, the disciples, they see Jesus take bread again. Maybe just a few months, and he gives thanks And he gives it to his friends, and this time there's not a lot of people to feed. This time it's just a few. It's an intimate setting at a Passover meal on the night that Jesus is betrayed. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, is what they hear. By midnight, that man is arrested, and he's crucified, and he's dead by midday. Looking out into the world, aware of multitudes of people who are hungry for things like Deliverance from evil, for forgiveness, for healing, for freedom, for friendship. Hungry for a trustworthy person. Somebody that we can actually have some confidence in. Jesus of Nazareth looking out on that wilderness and that enormous need considered what sacrifice he could make. What he could share, what God could stretch out. When Christ came into the world, the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. What Jesus has to offer is his life. This is my body given for you. And Jesus knew that God could multiply his sacrifice. Very truly I tell you, he said to his friends in John's gospel, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it's just a single seed, but if it dies, if it's offered, if a sacrifice is made, it can make many seeds. So on the cross, Jesus used his power, and he used his authority, and he used them to offer up what he had. Everything that he had. Power doesn't always corrupt. You remember what Kara said? It reveals. 
when you have enough power to do what you always wanted to do, you see what the person always wanted to do. So it's on the cross we see God and Jesus. We get to see what they always wanted to do. Jesus always wanted to give everything he had to satisfy everything we need. And in doing so, he plays a part in resolving this crisis of who can be trusted with power and authority. He doesn't do it out of duty. He doesn't do it out of love. But we're told in the New Testament that he did it out of a profound and inexhaustible love for people. This man of great power and great authority for our good, with a firm mind towards the future, and a really keen interest in your right now, gave everything he had. And he formed a community in his name. And the community in his name, with his interests at heart, can be a community that is more than the fears and the selfish desires of its members. It can be a community that gets in the habit of making sacrifices for the least and for the lost. And the sacrifices made by a community like this are very humble and can be very small, but God can stretch them out. I worked with Sharing Hope in the early summer, and it was tragic and awful what got us to that point where we worked with your organization. And it felt absolutely desolate. But that young man made an offering and God stretched it out. He can stretch out your little offering for maximum good because that's your story, isn't it? I don't want to be disrespectful. It's a very small, humble, vulnerable offering that was made on Golgotha. Why are we still talking about it? God has been stretching out that offering for 2,000 years. Even if you're not part of the story yet, even if you don't feel like you're on the inside of the story yet, it's at least worth recognizing you're here right now as an effect of God's love being stretched out. So that can give us confidence to make our own little offerings. I have two things to say and then I'll be done because I think I went over. I followed all the instructions on the sheet except that one. <laughs> Here's the first thing. is that I don't think it will surprise you that the church has played a big role in the crisis of trust that we're experiencing right now. And people are suspicious about whether or not Christian communities are for their good or if they're secretly working for their own advantage. Sometimes it's not so secret, is it? What do we do with that? Well, you can leave, and I know a lot of people are doing that. You can put your toe back in the water and try and put the pieces together. 
But let me just give you one more option. You can take responsibility for making a contribution for this community to be what people always hoped it would be anyway. You understand? Take responsibility. Being angry in the face of some of the disappointments that I have experienced with the, ch- with the church is absolutely reasonable. And being sad and disenchanted and disenfranchised is absolutely reasonable. But God will not stretch out your anger. He will not stretch out your disappointments. He can redeem them, yes. But if you take responsibility, if you take a responsibility to contribute to a community formed in the name of the man who offered up everything he had to satisfy the needs of everything we need, if you take responsibility for that, that's a little sacrifice. And God can stretch that out. That's one thing. For those of you that feel like you're in the story, for those of you that don't feel like you're in the story, and we're talking about the church as a community of trust, and you're your antenna's like, warning. What could you do to make a positive step? Well, I, the bad news is that you can't, you can't resolve a crisis of trust with God or with the church until you lean on them enough to know if they're going to catch you. And so if you're looking to resolve all the doubts and the confusions you might have about the Christian faith before you step into it, they'll never be resolved because you're never giving anybody a chance to catch. Yeah? And so a very simple thing you could do, I'll give you two things because I didn't know we had mimosas. Two things to do. You could, uh, my best friend prayed this prayer. In college, when we both became Christians, I didn't know he wasn't a Christian because he came to church all the time and I always thought church was so boring I couldn't imagine why anybody would go if they didn't believe it. But he went all the time. And he went back to his room and he just said, if you're real, please come visit me. I welcome you. That's a pretty easy thing for anybody in the room to pray, right? Right? But the other thing you could do is you could go have mimosas. You might make a friend, and I have a lot of confidence you might learn this community is a good community of trust just because I know some of the people that help lead it. Let's pray. I'm sorry I went over. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come to us with all our immense need And that this would be a place where we can be fed and nourished by your hand and your spirit and your offering that God can stretch out. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus.
worship team. All right, I will be nice. And honestly, the congregation has been really nice because they only sent two questions in. All right, for those that still have doubts, how do we help those believe the unbelievable loaves and fishes story? The questions are pretty nice. I've worked with college students because you could have been much ruder than you were. I feel like it's a real missed opportunity on your end, but good for me. Um, Yes, I think that faith is a gift from God. This is what the New Testament teaches, that it's a supernatural gift. And so one of the things we don't want to do is require things from people that they're incapable of giving. Do you understand what I mean? The former bishop of South Carolina, his name's Fitz Allison, he said that Sunday was the day of the week people feel more fussed at than any other day of the week. <laughs> and it's because you might be asked to do something that you're not able to do. And sometimes we can make a mistake by asking people or demanding that they believe something that they just actually don't have the capacity for. And so what do they really need from you? Um, They might not need apologetics. They might not need the book that was super special for you 20 years ago (laughs) that might not be super special for them. What they really just need is time from you to stick with them and walk with them and be sensitive that that actually might be the only thing God requires of you is to be a a consistent presence of love and offering and sacrifice and encouragement and give him time to resolve uh, issues of doubt in their life because he has time to do it and he has capacity to do it um, and he has a day on the calendar to do it. Yeah? Well, well said. That was beautiful. Uh, okay. This is honestly a harder question for me than for you. How are church leaders supposed to address the mistrust of their own institutions? And I'm an elder, so be 100% honest, please. Give us your worst. I told um, Colin I would be a pretty boring guest for this series because it's called Hot Takes, and I don't feel like I, I don't know, I don't get fired up enough to get super hot anymore, so (laughs) maybe I tell you a story and you can take from it what you will. Uh, You know the name St. John of the Cross, some of you will know that name. You might have even read his little book, The Dark Night of the Soul. It begins with the words, tonight my beloved came to visit me. Well, you might not know what he was going through when he wrote that book. He decided that he wanted to reform the church. And for him, that meant that he would, he would just start a community and they would rededicate themselves to prayer, to charity, and to personal poverty. That's all he said to his own community. They were so offended that he would go and try to reform that they kidnapped him and they held him in a cell for a year. They would only bring him out at lunchtime to recite a psalm while they kind of publicly humiliated him. And it's while he's enduring that every day that he writes, tonight my beloved came to visit me and it was Jesus who came to visit him. So there's a variety of ways you can tackle this kind of dysfunction and corruption in the church Uh, I've tried to do that. I don't need to get too deep into it. But I'll just let you know that um, 
by merely providing an alternative. Not, not entering into an argument, it's hard for me sometimes, not getting super defensive, not telling people how wrong they have handled these things, and I, I've done plenty of that. I think the better path is just to create an alternative. You keep being you, and we are going to seek reform. We're going to rededicate ourselves to prayer, and we're going to rededicate ourselves to charity. We're going to rededicate ourselves to love and to grace and to welcome, to hospitality, to restoration. That's what we're going to do. We're going to be serious about it. But the warning is, the warning from St. John of the Cross, is sometimes merely by providing an alternative, you make the establishment pretty angry. So you have to be prepared for the anger that the establishment can throw at you. Please don't lock me up in a cellar, Parkside. Yeah, don't. Please. Very nice. Thank you so much for answering our questions. I know this is probably the toughest part of guest preaching at Parkside, but you handled it wonderfully. So thank you so much. If y'all have any more questions or anything, uh, text them in, and Colin will address them on Facebook Live tomorrow.